Welcome to another MDF podcast episode. Today we have the pleasure to have Belen Perez Duenas and Manju Kurian, first and senior authors of the recent research paper entitled The Genetic Landscape of Complex Childhood Onset Hyperkinetic Move Disorders, published in Move Disorder Journal. Welcome, Belen and Manju, and thank you for accepting the invitation to be interviewed. Now, this study is one of the major advances in identifying spectrum of hyperkinetic movement and molecular diagnosis in children. But I think it's worth to explore the major sections of the study. And I may ask Belen to tell us about the study design. What is the background? What is the reason to do this study? Okay, the reason was that we were both concerned about the classification of human disorders in children because it didn't fit in most of the phenotypes that we see in the clinic. So we wanted to delineate the movement disorder phenotype in a number of monogenic conditions that we know that are not pure, are not isolated, but are combined with different movements at the same time and with overlapping phenotypes and also with other developmental issues, like complex phenotypes that are quite different from those that begin in the adult age. And how many patients were the cohorts at the end? Yeah, we contact a lot of centers, like Gentry something. We finally got a report of 14 colleagues that were aiming to collaborate. And then all together, I think that we recruited 140 patients it's not too much, also because the group is genetically very heterogeneous. That was also one of our aims. But still, the number of patients for each genetic defect is small. So I say this is a limitation of the study, obviously, but still it's worth trying to do a classification of the movement in such a big series. And what was the methodology during the phenomenological diagnosis? How this was made? Because I think it's interesting for the readers to know. Yeah, we use the current classification that is validated for children in the different types of cyberkinetic movement disorders. And then we analyze the videos. And by consensus, the two of us, to define the movement that we were seeing in the videotapes of the children. Now, in regarding the number of patients, and different categories, phenomenologies, Estonia, Korea, how many patients were there? What was the main finding regarding this? I think the main finding is that there are very few patients that have a single movement disorder. Dystonia is prominent in the majority of genes, but very frequently dystonia is associated with another movement disorder. And this is different when you analyze presynaptic conditions with dopamine homeostasis abnormalities that these children mostly have dystonia combined with kinsonism and tremor, but also are very hyperkinetic in the first years of life. But then you have other conditions where the combination is usually more dystonia with chorea, dystonia with myoclonus, but not so frequently hypokinesia. So dystonia is usually combined with another hyper or hyperkinetic movement and uh, is usually generalized, except for those less frequently cases that begin later. I get the sense that there is a lot of complexity and the combination of the movement disorders. And sometimes in the clinical practice, it's difficult to tease apart what is the best way to approach this patient. Did you guys find any difficulty in getting the phenomenology diagnosis in particular cases? I say that this is difficult. We should come to agreement with this. Yeah, I think for some things like my clinical career, 
they can all look very similar, can't they? So it's quite difficult to differentiate between them. So that's where the consensus opinion is important. But it's really not a lot of science, I'd say, when it comes to, you know, kind of the phenomenology. And may I ask, Angie, any additional features that were important or relevant in this cohort, apart from the phenomenological diagnosis, including developmental delay? So we found that developmental delay was a major factor in determining age of onset. So genetic conditions that are associated with developmental delay tend to present earlier, and that reached its significance. So that's one major finding of the study. Yeah. And now for the clinicians that are listening to the podcast, any clues in terms of how to approach these patients that they may be seen in the clinic and say, I will look for this specific sign, at least to shore down the differential diagnosis this list? Okay, many clues. The, the clue is to examine the patient performing different tests. The clue is to analyze the patient with chorea walking because maybe then you can get dystonia also or make them right because maybe there is a writing dystonia or maybe different fine motor tasks in the clinic of children with suspected movement disorders because otherwise it's difficult to get all the clinical phenotype. So you need to perform the examination very standardized and to analyze kinetic movement disorders and making children do a lot of fine and gross motor tasks in the clinic to see all the phenotype. I think that's very important. And I think with that also, as part of the history, there are things that families will volunteer. For example, if you suspect a dip response to dystonia, to ask about you know, nocturnal events. There's lots of discussion about triggers. You know, these aren't things that families will actually give you really. But that's the major difference between assessment of an adult and a child, that you have to have a much more holistic approach. So just like... Ben Owens says that the hyperkinetic movement disorder has to be in a fairly kind of standardised way so that you pick up all things that require stress or other things to be brought out. But then within the history, to also consider the system, so development, intellectual state, and obviously things like, you know, systemic involvement of the rest of the body, which is much more common in these complex hyperkinetic movement disorders. Are there any combinations of eye movements with a hyperkinetic movement disorder that may suggestive of certain entities? Yes, so certainly if you see a combination of ocular gyrocrises with a hyperkinetic movement disorder, a neurotransmitter disorder should be high on the list. And I gather that the imaging characteristic of this patient where there is a lot of paucity of findings, meaning there is mostly normal, there is no major abnormalities. And that adds difficulty in diagnosing this patient because the imaging is normal. We selected this group specifically with normal imaging. And also there were groups that did not have easy biomarkers in blood or urine that would give you the same metabolic diagnosis. So these were patients that exactly like you say, either had no imaging clues or no easy biomarkers, you know, so biomarkers only in CSF or more complex biomarkers that are not easy to test. So very much reliant on clinical acumen and genetic diagnosis. And there is a sort of several mechanisms by which the molecular abnormalities led to this choreic dystonic syndromes. What are the implications of knowing this in a particular patient and have this molecular diagnosis and aiming for specific treatment and management or progression, for example, in disease? Yes, so the molecular mechanisms are really broad. You'll see from the list of genes that we found that they're involved in a broad range of cellular processes from gene expression, all the way to dopaminergic pathway genes, to synaptic genes, you know, they would be some of the main pathways that we've kind of elucidated in this. Finding genetic diagnosis, especially for a young family, is not just really. Many families want additional children, 
and it will allow pre-pregnancy counselling, it will allow pre-implantation diagnosis and diagnosis during the pregnancy for some families. So it has huge genetic implications. I don't think you can underestimate the value of closure for families. So many families have a long, long diagnostic odyssey and to have closure with a genetic diagnosis is very important. And then making a genetic diagnosis really negates the need for more complex investigations that some children are subject to without diagnoses like skin, muscle, other biopsies, you know, that are much more invasive. So it negates the need for that. And we're really in the age now where precision medicine is really advancing, and particularly for paediatric movement disorders. Within the group, many have a precision treatment, GCH1 related disease, and also the new gene therapy for agency deficiencies. So knowing the genetic diagnosis has certainly a lot of hope for children with these movement disorders because there are a lot of precision gene-targeted treatments in the pipeline already in trying. Also for the symptomatic treatment, it's important. For example, for DBS, sometimes you have concerns when or to whom offer a DBS and if you have the genetic condition identified, sometimes that helps in Offering DBS at a specific moment of the evolution, you can offer it in a time manner. If you have the genetic condition and you know the response to the DBS, so you can offer it earlier in certain conditions that are progressive and not wait until the patient is more severely affected. So genetic diagnosis helps in the management of symptomatic treatment, specifically DBS. It's also important. And then also it helps prognostication. So for the genes that are well delineated in the literature, you're able to say to families, this is what the future holds, which can be very important even if there's not a treatment. And now moving to the futures area of the research in hyperkinetic movement disorders in childhood, what is it that the study identifies the gaps of knowledge in what it aims to provide its future guidance, where to go from here? So I think it's balanced very nicely and elegantly puts this paper as a starting point that even though we have 140 cases, it's so heterogeneous, you know, what we need is 10 times that to really understand the nature of each condition. So we would hope that this paper would then lead to and generate even more interest in those individual genes to really understand long-term outcomes, therapeutics that work, gene-specific treatments, you know, we hope that they would catapult research into all these areas. And just the general understanding that actually... Many, many of these childhood onset hyperkinetic movement disorders, even with normal MRIs, can be very complex with combined features. So not to forget the non-neurological features that you can see. Wonderful. Thank you again, Belen and Manju, for talking about your paper. And I'll invite all the listeners to go and read The Genetic Landscape of Complex Childhood Onset Hyperkinetic Movement Disorders, recently published in Movement Disorder Journal. The views and opinions expressed by the participants in this podcast do not necessarily reflect those of the International Parkinson and Movement Disorder Society or their affiliated journals, Movement Disorders and Movement Disorders Clinical Practice. Any disclosures of the participants can be found within the episode description located on the MDS website. <laughs>